0: Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Well, we just thank you for um, your word, that your word holds true through all time, God, that we can stand upon your word as firm foundation. Lord, we thank you for your appointed times that you've given to us to, to meet with you as your people. Um, God, we just pray that you would speak to us in this time, God, that you would bring revelation <clears throat> and refreshment, and we just uh, love you and we worship you. In His name, amen. Um, so we are going to start off in Leviticus 23. Um which Leviticus 23, I don't have all the the fancy references up here, so you'll just have to listen to me talk. Uh, (laughs) But Leviticus 23 is the golden chapter on um, the appointed times. So if you want to know what the appointed times are, how they're laid out, flip to Leviticus 23, it's got it all there for you. Um, And uh, so we're going to start off in Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. These are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. So a couple words here um, that really stand out that we need to, to know are, it says the Lord's appointed times. These are the, the Moedim in Hebrew. And that word Moedim means appointed time, designated time, a feast or a festival or an assembly. All right, so you'll notice he says that these are the Lord's appointed times. These are the Lord's Moedim. They belong to him. And then also it says, which you shall proclaim as holy convocation. So what is holy convocation? In Hebrew, that that word is mikra. And a mikra is uh, is actually used 23 times in scripture and almost exclusively in conjunction with the word Moedim or the, the feast or festivals. And mikra comes from the, the root word kara, uh, which means to call out. And so a mikra is a holy convocation or a calling out of this holy time of the Lord. So you'll notice in Leviticus 23 that he says these are his appointed times, which you shall proclaim. So we have a part to play in the Moedim and setting them apart and proclaiming them at the times appointed for them. Um, the Lord wants us to partner with him in that in that process. And this word mikra also has a connotation of it, um, of actually a dress rehearsal. And so you can think about these appointed times as dress rehearsals. You'll see that as we go through these, that the Lord has moved in these times throughout history, historically, um, but also that he's gonna continue to move throughout these times, uh, these appointed times as we move forward. And so these are dress rehearsals as well for what is to come. Um, yeah. So they're exciting, exciting times. Um, so another thing to note here, um, if you're new to some of this, you'll notice as you start to do some of these things, you'll have a lot of very well-meaning friends and believers say, well, why why are you doing, why are you doing that? Isn't that just a, a Jewish holiday? I mean, why are you, why are you doing that? You're not Jewish. And again, going back to this, these are the Lord's appointed times. These are not just Jewish holidays. These are the Lord's appointed times that he gave to the Israelites to steward. He gave to all of his people to steward. And so we get to be a part of, um, of entering into that. And we see also that the Lord established these Moedim at creation. at the Very beginning, uh, Genesis 1.14, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, which in the Hebrew is that word again, Moedim, and for days and for years. And so they're for signs, right? They're also for seasons, the Moedim. And they're also for days and years, we see in Genesis 1.14. And a really cool thing about the Hebrew calendar is that the Hebrew calendar says, "Let these lights, let these be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. So we're talking about the moon and the sun. Well, the Hebrew calendar is the only calendar that uses both the solar and the lunar to establish days, months, and years. So the Gregorian calendar, our calendar uses the solar. The Islamic calendar uses um, lunar only. So their seasons get all out of whack if you're looking solely at that calendar. Um, But the Hebrew calendar is the only calendar that is actually doing what God said to do with it, which is pretty cool. Um, And we, as God's people, we need to be aligned with his calendar to know what he's doing. Right. I mean, imagine if you were trying to set an appointment with someone to get together and you use two completely different modes of telling time or you're on two completely different calendars and you're like, let's meet this day. What well, day means this to me and it means that to you. Or even imagine if you're living on, which a lot of people do, on the border of two different time zones, you have to keep two clocks, right? A lot, And that's actually what they do. They'll keep two clocks, their work clock and their home clock. So maybe I'll work in you know, this time zone and then when I'm at home, I'm in another time zone. Well, I have to keep track of that. And so Unfortunately, uh, we have to do that as well because it can get a little confusing, um, you know, looking at the different days and months and years. Um, but we do need to, uh, to take the time to do that, to really understand God's calendar um, because that's not our default. Daniel 7.25 says that he, that, speaking of the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times, which again is that word Moedim. So the Antichrist will seek to to change the Moedim and in law, or Torah. So this is how important these times are, not only to the Lord and to his people, but also to the enemy, because the enemy knows how powerful these times are and what the Lord has done during these times and what he will do during these times. And the power that there is when we intersect with God at his appointed times, there's power in that. And so the enemy has sought throughout history to change these appointed times and to change the Torah, to change the law. Um, and he'll continue to do that in the future. And so we see this at multiple points. Uh, Chris has talked about what Jeroboam did even in trying to, seeking to change the appointed times. And we see a lot of this at the time of Constantine and some of the separation that happened between the church and um and the Jewish people and separating from the appointed times and the Torah, a lot of things that God had established. And so we find in Leviticus 23, um, that there are actually eight Moedim listed with the first being the weekly Shabbat. And then it goes through the seven annual appointed times or Moedim. And I love this because every single week we get a chance to meet with God. Of course we can meet with God every day, right? But these special times set apart on the calendar are anointed to, to meet with him. God is, excuse me, is in that appointed time. And he said, he's going to be there. So we get the opportunity to show up and to meet with him. And so no matter where we're at throughout the process of the year, we know that we never have to go more than a week without that chance to encounter God at one of his appointed times. And uh, in this Shabbat, you know, we're, as we were talking about earlier, this is a, an anticipa- anticipation and an early celebration of the Messianic era where we'll have Yeshua here with us, ruling and reigning with us, where we'll get to dine with him. So every every Shabbat, you know, if we're having that Friday night dinner, it's an opportunity to dine with the Lord at his table. <clears throat> uh, Deuteronomy 16.16 16 is talking about the pilgrim feast. So within these seven, they're really broken down into three major feasts, which were the pilgrim feast. And so Deuteronomy 16.16 says that three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, and at the Feast of Weeks, Shabuot, and at the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year, every male that was age would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, no matter where he was at, within the land, or even potentially outside of the land in the diaspora, he would make the trek to Jerusalem to the temple to come up and worship the Lord at the appointed time in the prescribed way. Um, and we see actually in Luke, Luke two verses 41 through 42 says that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And we know what happens. He goes off in, uh, into the temple and gets in trouble, you know, but he's, uh, he's there at the, the feast with his dad. And so the way this would have worked is that every male who was beige would make the, the pilgrimage was required to make the pilgrimage by Torah, but the families would come as well if the family was able, you know, so if they had the money or they were able to be away from, um, you know, from home as a family, then they would make that trek together. And so we see at least that the festival of Passover, that Yeshua's entire family, they were going up to Jerusalem to the temple together, um, and potentially at the other two feasts as well, the whole family may have been able to go. And, uh, and so we see him there at Passover. So the, the, the feasts are really broken up into two major sections, I'll call them. But um, this between the spring feast and the fall feast. And in the spring feast, we have Passover or Pesach, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day period. Um, and then within that, you have the Feast of first fruits or Yom HaBukharim in Hebrew. And then counting up to that, we know we count seven weeks to the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot, um, which is still technically the springtime. And then uh, you, you fast forward into the fall, into what we're heading into, and you have three more feasts. You have the Feast of Trumpets or Yom Teruah, um, as scripture calls it traditionally, also called Rosh Hashanah, which we'll get into that. Um, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, are the Feast of Tabernacles. So the really cool thing about this is if you look at the way that the feasts are laid out throughout the year, you have the three feasts around the time of Passover, you have the three fall feasts, and then somewhere in the middle you have uh, Shavuot. And so what this makes is this picture of the of the menorah, the candlesticks, with Shavuot being right in the middle and feeding life into all directions. And you think about what happened at Shavuot with the giving of the Torah, giving of the Spirit, which feeds life into the whole rest of the year. And, um, and so with this, you know, these are, so I was saying both days of remembrance and looking back at what the Lord has already done during these times and also days of expectancy. Um, so we'll see that there are some of these that have yet to be fulfilled. So when we look back at the spring feast throughout history, we see that the exodus of God's people occurred um, at the time of Passover, right? When God brought people out of Egypt, we see that the parting of the Sea of Reeds took place at, um, at first fruits. And we also see that the giving of the Torah, of course, took place at Mount Sinai at Shavuot. And so we see a level of fulfillment, you know, in the spring feast at this time, the time of the exodus. And that word fulfillment, that's one that gets tricky. A lot of people think, oh, well, they're fulfilled. So that means that they're good. They're done away with. We finished that back then. They're done away with, right? Now, the word fulfill means to fill full of meaning, to pack it full of meaning. And so these days are filled full of imagery of what God has already done. And God is proud of what he did in Egypt. There's so many times that he commands us to remember the Exodus and to remember what he did for his people coming out of Egypt. And in fact, when we have our Passover Seder, that's one of the the most important aspects that we're commanded to remember the exodus. And so we talk about the story, we talk about the deliverance of the people from Egypt. Um, But the spring feast also saw another layer of fulfillment, right, at the coming of Yeshua, at the first coming of Yeshua. So Yeshua died on Passover at the ninth hour when the the Passover lamb would have been being sacrificed at the temple. I mean, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's amazing the way that God has moved through these times
1: throughout history.
0: And this begins that, that process of the seven days of unleavened bread. And during that, you remove all the leaven from your house, which leaven can be, um, you know, cor- that can correspond to sin or be symbolic of sin. And so you think about, well, what did Yeshua do? He, he got rid of the sin from, he took the sin from his house, right? Out of his house during that time from his people. And then Yeshua was resurrected on first fruits as the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 20. But Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's the first fruits of the resurrection and he was raised on first fruits. That's, that's pretty cool. And the Holy Spirit, of course, was poured out on the believers at Jerusalem on Shavuot. So, you know, again, you see another layer of fulfillment. And does that mean that he's done moving through these days? I don't think so. I think he's got he's got more to come. So you know, historically, he's moved through these times. Specifically, the the spring feast, we see just all kinds of um, of interaction between the Lord on these specific days. So some of these moedim we've seen fulfilled once, some we've seen fulfilled twice, and some not yet. And specifically, when we're talking about the fall feast, there is there's not really a whole lot that we can point back to specifically on those days. Just through a reading of through of the Torah alone to say, okay, this is what God has done on these days, and that's because a lot of that has yet to be done that we have to look forward to. So, again, the purpose of these moedim is, you know, a rehearsing for what's to come, and also a a remembrance of what He's also done, what He has already done. and so God is a God of cycles. You can see through this whole process that, you know, every seven days we have a Shabbat, right? Every month we have the new moon festival, right? Every every 30 days we get a new moon. There's this constant cycle going on. As we move throughout the year, we pass through these same seven Moedim every single year through this cycle. And every seven years we have a Shemitah, which is a Sabbat, sabbatical year. And every seven Shemitahs we have a Jubilee year, Right? So he's he's all about these cycles and bringing his people through these cycles. And to me, it's this process of he knows how forgetful we are. You know, he knows how quick we are to forget. We're talking about that today. Some as well, you know, that it, how easy is it to to see God's miraculous provision, to see the great things that he's done and then to come into the land and forget the things that you just saw him do. And we do that in our own lives as well. But the beautiful thing about this is that if we keep in step with this calendar, we're always coming back to a remembrance of what he's done, of who he is, and an expectancy, a remembrance of the expectancy of the things that he's yet to do. And so really this this calendar is meant to to hem us in to keep us um, walking in his ways. All right, so we're going to jump into the Fall Feast, and this is really meant to be an overview. So hopefully um, this will just uh, pique your interest and you'll have some more time to go look at these things as we're moving through um, the Fall Feast, because there's just so much here that we can never cover, especially all three of these in a in an hour-long teaching. But um, there is just a lot to talk about with these. Um, and so we're going to start off uh, with Yom Teruah, which is uh, Rosh Hashanah. And we're coming up upon that next week. So Yom Teruah is the fifth feast of the yearly cycle. And it's the first of the three fall feasts. And it falls on the first of Tishrei, which is the seventh month. All right, Yom Teruah, that word that I'm using there, is from scripture. Yom meaning day. And Teruah is, which I'll actually go a little bit more into, but is a, a sound of a trumpet blast. So it's often uh, translated as the day of trumpets. So in English, you may have heard that as well, the day of trumpets or the feast of trumpets. Um, And then this Rosh Hashanah is more of a traditional naming, which means the head of the year. So the reason, again, confusing, because it's the seventh month. So why would that be the head of the year? So the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah actually starts the new year on the the civil calendar, not the religious calendar. So the religious calendar is when the Lord said that you'll count from Nisan as your first of months. And you'll count your days from there. So the the civil year and also the agricultural cycle um, in the land, and again, really before the Lord said in Nisan that this is going to be the first of months for you, this is this would have been the new year. Because everything in, in ancient times revolved around the agricultural cycle. So not only Israel but all the nations around them would have counted their their days beginning around this time of Tishrei, around the seventh month, because that would have been when the agricultural cycle uh, started over. Um, Are you calling that civil? Or that civil? Yes, yeah, that's the the civil, the civil calendar, and then the agricultural cycle is uh, resetting within that. Um, okay, so back to Leviticus 23, and verse 23, it says, the Lord said to Moses, in the seventh month of in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. So as you can see, just from a you know a reading of what Scripture has to say about this day, we don't receive a whole lot about how to actually observe the day or why we're observing the day. What is it that we're remembering? Um, and so... Just from a, a quick reading there, you see that this day is to be a Shabbat, so we're to rest from our labors. And then where it says that we're to hear the blast of the shofar, hear the blast of the trumpet, of the shofar. Okay? And that's about all we get from Scripture. So, of course, we get a lot more from tradition as we go through on how the observances were upheld, uh, what type of blast we're listening to, all different things like that. And then also, along with um, some of the traditional observances of Rosh Hashanah, there as well. Um, but this blast of the shofar that we're commanded to hear, this is a, a specific sequence of blasts that we're to hear. And I'll come back to that here in a minute. Um, but the blast of the trumpet begins what is called the 10 days va. So, this uh, this period of 40 days that we've been talking about that started back at the first of Elul, and we go through the month of Elul, and then you hit Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, the blast of the shofar sounds, and that begins what's called the 10 days va, which is this period of as we're moving through the month of Elul, we're repenting, we're bringing our hearts before the Lord, we're asking for him to reveal things in us. And then um, starting at Rosh Hashanah, that 10 days, that, that whole process is heightened to another level of repentance and really preparing our hearts for the Lord to come before him. Um, and especially in the days of the temple, this would have just been, man, just a, a time of intense introspection um, in preparation to go up to the temple in Jerusalem at Yom Kippur and the whole process of uh, the high priest going in, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, but this would have been, and is, a very a time of great reverence and preparation. Um, and then another, you know, I talked about that as we look through tradition, we were able to actually glean a lot more of how some of these observances were upheld and some of the traditions that were built around them um, that are really, really cool. And one of those with Rosh Hashanah is uh, is the tradition of Tashlik. Um, and so Tashlik means casting off, to cast off. And this actually comes from uh, Micah 7.19. It says that God will take us back in love. God will cover up our iniquities. You, God, will hurl all of our sins into the depths of the sea, or cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And so the observance of this and it's really powerful we've done it for the last several years as a family and with the franklins often since we're across the street we'll just walk down to a, a creek together um, but you take traditionally pieces of bread little pieces of bread that you take out to to flowing water to living water um, or you can go to any body of water really but your the idea is that you're throwing these pieces of bread out and these are representative of your sins throughout the past year so you know, take that time to reflect as well on, you know, where are the places that I fell short. And then basically just taking those and casting off your sins from the last year and starting that year off fresh. And it's really just a powerful the imagery of it is really powerful and has been for us and our family. Um, so that's something we, we enjoy doing. All right. So going back to this word, Terua, teruah is a blast or a shout of war. It can also be a sound of alarm or a shout for joy. So there's, it's like a, a loud sound, a loud yelling, a shout for joy. Um, it can be an alarm. It can be all of those types of things. And that's actually what the, the exactly corresponds to what the shofar was blown for. It can be sounded as an alarm, uh, praise, a shout of joy, um, all these different things. And so there are a lot of really cool verses that talk about this teruah, this idea of the teruah, but I've got a couple here. Psalm 47, verse 5 says that God has ascended with a shout, and that word shout is teruah, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Joshua 6, 20 says, so the, the people shouted and priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, which again is teruah, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. So this is when the Israelites are surrounding Jericho and marching around and they blew the shofars. And then they shouted with the teruah, and the the walls fell down. So it actually wasn't when they blew the shofars that the walls fell. It's when they shouted, when they teruahed, and uh, and the walls fell down. And so one really cool thing, too, about the, the Hebrew language is that it's both phonetic and pictographic. So the words, the letters spell out something, which is a word, and that word has meaning, right? But it's also pictographic, meaning you can look at every single letter, like hieroglyphics, And every single letter is a picture that means something in and of itself. So one of the really cool things about Hebrew is you have a word like shalom that means something, right? It means peace, but a a little bit of a deeper understanding even of what peace is and what that looks like in the Hebrew. But then you can also dig into what is the word picture for shalom, go through the letters. And a lot of times there is deeper revelation hidden there. And so when we look at teruah, the word picture for teruah is a tav. It's the first letter, which is, they're cross sticks, which means a sign or a mark. And then resh, which is a head, meaning the most important. Vav, which is a nail, meaning joined or bound together. And ayin, which is an eye or to see. And then a hey, which is a window, meaning to reveal. So when you look at all this taken together, the word picture for Teruah is the sign of the most important revelation that he wants us to see. It's pretty cool. Right, and so he's trying to show us something here with this day. And again, it's a, it's mysterious. And the and the sages talked a lot about this, you know, about the how much uh, this day is sh- you know shrouded in mystery. just based on what the Torah gives us. We're given very little. And so at Yom Teruah, again, we're commanded to hear the shofar, but there's a specific blast of sequence that's been ordained for this time, and it's actually a sequence of a hundred blasts that we're to hear. And the shofar blast, you have um, various blasts that mean various things. And so we're going through these, and you get, there's the tekiah, the shabari, and the terua, And you're going through these different sequences throughout that hundred blasts. And then you get to the last blast, and that's called the tekiah dola, the great trumpet. And this is the final blast that's done only once, and it's known as the long great blast. It's also known as the great shofar, and it's also known as the final trump, the final trumpet. So a couple of verses here, First Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a teruah, the shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the final trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed so this kiik dolah this last blast that we hear on Yom Teruah is known as the final trump right and this is tied together with this idea that's that Paul's mentioning here that will usher in the resurrection and the return of yeshua so there are all these aspects tied up with the second coming of Messiah, of Yeshua, um, that are tied in with with Yom Teruah. And so Rosh Hashanah would occupy a 24-hour period over a 48-hour period in Israel. Um, But only the high priest could determine uh, when the exact time would be to blow the trumpet. And so no one knew at exactly what hour or on which of the two days that the high priest would blow the trumpet. And so for this reason, in Yeshua's day, it was known as the day and the hour which no man knows.
1: And when Yeshua
0: was asked by his disciples in Matthew 24 what the signs of his coming would be, he gave several allusions to the Feast of Trumpets, that being one of them, right? So in verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father Father alone. Which I think he meant literally no one knows the exact day or hour, but he was also making allusion to his disciples that, might be somewhere might have something to do with this day, right? And then by the sighting of the the first sliver of the moon, the priests would determine the exact hour and they would initiate a fire. And then this fire would be relayed from hilltop to hilltop, starting from the eastern wall of the temple in Jerusalem and going all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And so thus another name for the feast was the feast of the lightning that shines from the east to the west. And so verse 27 in Matthew 24 says, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So again, he's making these allusions here. And So to be ready to respond to the trumpet call, Israelites would carry a pack with everything needed for the journey to Jerusalem. So if, you, if you're living far away from Jerusalem, you better start making the, the trip early. But a lot of the surrounding areas, if you live a little closer by, you had work to do, you may be waiting for the exact time to, to make it up there. And so you'd carry a pack with you. And then when the trumpet sounded, you started to see that signal fire. Boom, I better I better get up there. And so you could tell in these areas who the sons were and who the servants were because you'd have two working in the field. And then all of a sudden, the son would have the pack because he's ready to go at the sound of the trumpet. <laughs> he was a proper.
1: Yeah, Ben always has his
0: pack on him. So he's <laughs> making sure. if you hear that trumpet? So verse 40 in Matthew 24, this is all from Matthew 24, um, all references to him talking about the signs of his coming. He says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. I'm not not trying to, you know, I'll just leave that one alone. I'll leave that one alone. So all right, verse 31 and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And also verse 42, all still in Matthew 24, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So this is the most important revelation we see in the word picture, that the Lord wants us to understand. He wants us to see. He wants us to be prepared and ready for his coming. And so he gives us all these illusions, right? But we have to to dig for them. Scripture says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. So we want to search it out, you know, not just read that, rudimentary uh, understanding of what's being said, but to dig in. And when you start to dig in here, it's, it's like, okay, I think think I understand what you're trying to say, Ishua. I think I'm beginning to see what this revelation is. And So some other aspects of uh, Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah are, um, this is traditionally believed to be the anniversary of the creation of man. Um, Yom Teruah is also believed to be a day of judgment or reckoning. So it's said that on Yom Teruah, that the books are opened and the books mean the book of life, the book of death, and then some believe a third book for, you know, those that are somewhere in the middle, uncertain, Uh, the books for the righteous, the books for the wicked, we'll call them. And then the ones that are like, okay, they're still figuring it out. Um, And that, so yeah, these books are opened on this day. It's believed. And then also this day is called Yom Hadin, or the day of judgment. And so we're going to look really quick, uh, quickly at the word picture for deen or judgment as well. Um, Starts with a dalet, which is a door or pathway, and then a yud, which is work, deed or activity,
1: and then a nun,
0: which is life. And so the Hebrew word picture here shows us that the day of judgment is not meant to be a bad thing. We often have this negative connotation of what judgment is, is only God just coming to bring bad things upon the wicked. This is meant, this day is meant to move us from the way of death to the way of life, to, to, cause, to cause us to redirect. You know, we're constantly redirecting to make sure that we're staying on the path that is so narrow. And just as we were talking about today with Deuteronomy 30, you know, there's two paths before you, choose life. We want to choose life. And we need reminders often to choose life. And so God is trying to make this as clear as possible for us. And also Abraham offered Isaac on this day. So by the sounding of the shofar on Yom Teruah, we're calling to remembrance the sacrifice of Isaac that Abraham was willing to make. Um, and so traditionally it's, it's taught that on this day, you know, we would ask forgiveness. We would ask God forgiveness based on the merit of Abraham's sacrificing of Isaac. And so what did God provide in Isaac's place? Well, he provided a ram, right? And so we sound the the ram's horn. It's also taught that the, the first ram's horn, uh, Wait, I'm I'm butchering this. Where was the first ram's horn blown? Cuz I know the there of the two the two horns off of the ram from that day they say that the first ram's horn was was blown somewhere and now I just totally forgot it as soon as I started. But that the second ram's horn would be blown at the coming of Messiah. I know that. Okay, so we don't we don't know. But go look it up that's somewhere. It was blown for something. Yeah, from the ram. And then um, as believers, you know, within this, we're ultimately calling to remembrance the sacrifice of Yeshua, right? That the father was willing to make and did go through with. And the son was also willing to make. We've talked about this in the past that it wasn't only the sacrifice of Abraham that had Mary. It was the sacrifice of Isaac because Isaac was willing to go up. He wasn't a little child at this time. He was a grown man who could have resisted his father, just like Yeshua was a grown man who could have resisted his father but he went willingly to the cross for us. A um, couple other uh, references in the from the sages that I just want to mention here on what this day is, and we don't really have time to go into them, but they're cool, so I wanted to mention them. Um, this day is also... I think it's Sinai. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's what I've heard. Okay, so the first shofar's horn was blown at Sinai, we think we just realized. Yeah. 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 So the first the, the first of those ram's horns was sounded at Sinai, the second will be at the coming of the Messiah. So this day is also referred to as the future wedding day of Messiah in rabbinic literature. And so yeah, there's a lot to look forward to. And also this day is also called Hamalek, which refers to the coronation of the king as well at this time. Um and then there's also a reference of this being known as the time of Jacob's trouble. So having to do with, uh, with that time of trouble. A couple of verse references there. Anyone taking them down is Ezekiel 30 verses 6 through 7. Daniel 12, Daniel 12 verse 1 and Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16. Um, so again, we don't have time to go into all of that, but there, there's a lot packed into this day uh, if you do the digging. And so we want to be watchful and we want to be ready and waiting for the time of Messiah. So every year, you know, we blow the shofar. We blow the shofar from earth up to heaven and we're waiting for the day. One of these years that we're going to hear the heavenly shofar sounding, coming back down towards us, you know, sounding the, the return of Messiah. And that's what we're waiting for. And so with this whole aspect of these being dress rehearsals every year, we want to, you know, we want to rehearse for that day. Are, am I ready? For the return of Yeshua, am I ready? Have I made myself pure and white and spotless? You know, and as we move through these 40 days, these are the things we want to be thinking about. As we move through the 10 days, Rosh Hashanah and leading up to Yom Kippur, these are the things that we're thinking about and preparing ourselves for is this, this dress rehearsal. All right, so moving into to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Um, and this is the culmination of that 40-day period of repentance that we're talking about that began at, at the first of Elul. And this is considered the holiest day on the, the calendar, the holiest day. And the term Kippur is actually written in the plural in Hebrew. So the day in Hebrew is actually called
1: Yom, ha, Yom HaKippurim
0: or the Day of atonement. And perhaps because of the multitude of sins that were being covered over at this time at the temple, there were multiple sacrifices made for the temple for the cleansing of the priesthood and their family and also for all of the people of Israel. And rabbinic tradition um, states here again that at Rosh Hashanah that the books are opened, but also that at Yom Kippur the books are sealed. So hence this this 10-day period of preparation or this 10 days, the 10 days of awe where we are really, Coming before the Lord in this intense way, um, and we're asking for a good judgment. And so, in this, in other words, um, these books are are written. They're opened up every year, right? At um, at Rosh Hashanah and at Yom Kippur, they're sealed. So this this verdict is uh, final for the year, so to speak, is what is taught. And so you have this 10 day window to turn from the way of death, turn to the way of life, to turn from wickedness, to turn to righteousness, really search our hearts and say, Lord, you know, just as as David prayed in Psalm 139 to say, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in, in the everlasting way. So sometimes we can't just search ourselves, right? We need the Lord to search us because there's there are things that are there that we don't even see. Um, and so we know that, you know, our names are written in the book of life through faith in Yeshua. Right. But this is this is still a day that we want to approach with the highest reverence um, in preparation and preparing ourselves and making sure that we are prepared and made white before him on this time. And so we're going to take a, a quick look at the timeline as well of the events at Sinai, just to get an idea of how everything plays out and what's going on at this time. So at Shavuot, um, around the 7th of Sivan is when Moses went up on the mountain. And then on the 17th of Tammuz, about 40 days later, is when the tablets were broken. And on the 18th is when he burned the golden calf. So he goes up on the mountain, receives the Torah, comes down, receives the tablets, comes down, sees the people have already engaged in the sin of the golden calf, right? He breaks the tablets. Then on the next day, on the 18th, he burned up the golden calf and the transgressors were judged. And then on the nineteenth, he started this forty-day period of pleading for mercy, of intercession for the people. And then on the first of Elul is when he actually went back up onto the mountain for forty days to receive the tablets. Intercede, you know, he had interceded before the Lord, and then he goes up and he's there for another forty days. And then on the tenth of Tishrei is when God comes down. I'm sorry, is when Moses comes back down with the second set of tablets. And so uh, a quote from Rashi here. On the 10th of Tishrei, which is uh, Yom Kippur, by the way, the 10th of Tishrei. So Rashi says, on the 10th of Tishrei, God restored his goodwill with the Jewish people gladly and wholeheartedly, saying to Moses, I have forgiven as you ask and gave him the second tablets. So Moses had interceded for the people for 40 days after the sin of the golden calf. And then after ascending Sinai, receiving the second set of tablets, comes back down to camp on Yom Kippur and thus atonement was made for the people. And so you'll also notice that he went up on the first of Elul. So this is tied into this 40-day period of repentance that we're looking at. This is the time that Moses went up. And, you know, I'm sure the people at this point, they had just seen, you know, Moses come down. Finally, they are like, well, we don't know if he's ever coming down. Well, he did come down with the tablets, and they've already turned aside to idolatry. He breaks the tablets. You can imagine what this this period of 40 days looked like. For the people in camp, for the Israelites, as Moses went back up and they're just repenting on their faces. They're waiting, you know, hoping for a good judgment from the Lord.
1: And So
0: here as Moses was interceding for the people as well. We see the, the first hinting at God's book of life. Um, as Moses says to him, let me be stricken from the book you have written. And this is this beautiful picture of Moses being willing to be blotted out for the sake of the people. You know, we see this with Yeshua as well, who is uh, the one who is willing to be blotted out for our sake. And in fact, Paul makes reference to the same when he says, uh, I don't have the exact reference here, but says, you know, would that I would be blotted out for the sake of the people, for the sake of Israel, that they would come to you. And so in abbreviated order of the day, because um, we don't have a ton of time, but on the day of Yom Kippur, uh, and this is what the events would have looked like at the time of the temple. So on this day, the the Kohen Gadol, or the high priest, um, had a very precise uh, order of services, sacrifices, and um, aspects of purification that he'd be going through. And the high priest would perform a ceremony where he would take a, a bull and two goats as a special offering. And the bull would be sacrificed to cleanse the temple from the sins of the priest and their families. So it would be sacrificed for the priesthood and for their families. And then the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the bull inside the veil of the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. Right there. Everything okay? Oh, he's back on the blinds. We had a, a flying creature in here. it a wasp? Yes. There's a wasp art. Is it someone get him? So the bull would be So the bull would be sacrificed, the blood would be applied within the veil on the mercy seat. And then there would, uh, the high priest would draw lots for the two goats. So one of the goats would be assigned La Adonai, designated La Adonai, which was for the Lord, and one would be La Azazel, which is for Azazel. And the goat that was designated for Adonai for the Lord would be sacrificed on behalf of the people with the blood being presented inside the veil on the, the caparet on the, the mercy seat. And then finally, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the second goat, confessing the sins of the people over it. And then it would be sent out into the wilderness and ultimately pushed off a cliff. And, uh, this aspect of it being a lot of people think that it just got sent off into the wilderness. They made sure that thing died so that it didn't come back into camp. I mean, imagine because you have this imagery of, okay, the, you know, the goat being, you know, sacrificed for our sins. And now this one we're casting the sins on for the picture and we're seeing it walk off into the wilderness and our sins going away. And then all of a sudden starts walking back into camp <laughs> like, Oh Lord. So they made sure he did come back in, uh, into the camp. And so tradition has it that as the high priest would tie, um, this scarlet thread around the neck of the goat, the high priest would tie this scarlet uh, thread around the neck of a goat. And that <clears throat> through this process, as it's being, um, led off that actually the, the scarlet thread, would turn white as the, the goat was being sent off. And so this was this miraculous sign the Lord was giving the people. And this reportedly stopped, according to uh, to a couple different writings, about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the second temple. So if you do the math, that was somewhere right, somewhere right around the time that Yeshua died. And while the high priest performed his duties, the people would be fasting. They'd be praying. This was the climax of this 40 days they'd been going through. Um, and just waiting for this outcome, waiting to see these miraculous signs um, that were reported every year. And at the end of the rituals, the high priest, his garments would be covered in blood from, from the sacrifices that he had made throughout this process. And another uh, miracle that was reported every year is that um, as the high priest hung out his garments, that they would actually turn white from all the blood that was on them from the sacrifices, that his, his garments would actually turn white. As well, which is a beautiful picture. And then in the days of uh, the temple, Yom Kippur observance was almost entirely centered around this service, around the duties of the high priest, really. And the people, their job is really to watch on and to pray. Um, and so they were all gathered around. And so throughout this process, just to give you an idea of how intense this was for the high priest, the, the high priest wore five sets of garments, three golden and two white, Immersed himself in the mikvah five times, washed his hands and feet ten times, sacrifice sacrifices included the two daily lambs, the bull, the two goats that we talked about, two rams as well, with accompanying Minka uh, meal offerings, wine libations, and three incense offerings, and then the regularly the regular two daily and an additional sacrifice for Yom Kippur specifically. And then the Kohen uh, Gadol, the high priest, entered the Holy of Holies four times and the ineffable ineffable name was pronounced three times by the high priest through this whole process. So this was a rigorous day and the high priest would actually train for quite some time for these duties to make sure that he didn't make a mistake leading up to the time. Um, And so since the destruction of the temple, the sages have, have stressed the importance of even though the high priest is not at the temple performing these duties and we're not able to watch on, the importance of learning about and studying these duties to understand the the you know importance of them and what was actually taking place, and so this is uh, this is called the avodah, this this temple service, and so it's traditional through the process of Yom Kippur to study and to learn, and if you go to a synagogue service, they're going to go through um, they're going to go through the avodah and they're going to talk about verses specifically pertaining to the duties of the high priest at this time. Um, and so the sages taught that on Yom Kippur uh, there were five main things that we are to abstain from, and these are all taken from uh, Leviticus twenty three twenty seven, where he says to deny ourselves. So they inferred these things based on that. And n- number one is eating and drinking. So it's considered a day of a uh, total fast. So typically you would not only not eat food, but you would not drink water from sundown to sundown. And they also said washing and bathing, applying lotions or perfume, wearing leather shoes, which is a sign of luxury, and mar- marital relations. So basically anything that involves pleasure or, um, you know, a sign of luxury, things like that, that you would abstain from to really um, humble ourselves on that day and to deny ourselves all of those things. And so scripture also tells us that this day is a, a Shabbat Shabbaton, which means a day of absolute rest. Um, so we're to refrain from all types of ordinary work, um, so that we can fully focus on the holiness of the day and what the Lord has intended for it. And, uh, this phrase Shabbat Shabbaton actually occurs only seven times, uh, or I'm sorry, it occurs seven times concerning, uh, the Shabbat days throughout the Torah. Um, and so these are specifically on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the two days of Sukkot, which we'll get to in a minute, the two days of Passover, um, the day of Shavuot with Yom Kippur being the final of these seven that are mentioned. And so from this, the sages derived that this is basically the, the Sabbath of the Shabbat Shabbatons because it's the seventh listed. So it's the holiest day of the year. And the sages also taught that Yom Kippur is the only day that Satan, who's the accuser, has Satan in Hebrew means the accuser, that this is the only day that the accuser can't make, cannot lodge accusation against Israel so if you look at the gematria which is again going back to how cool the hebrew language is every single letter and word in hebrew you can pull the gematria from it has a numerical value and so if you take the numerical value and you can derive all kinds of really cool things from that but if you take the gematria of, of Hasatan, it's 364 so 364 days they said the accuser was able to lodge accusation against israel against god's people But on Yom Kippur, he he was not able to. Um, And with the idea of this being that, you know, just as he's rendered powerless on Yom Kippur, so he will be rendered powerless in the age to come. Very cool. Um, And then the last of our days um, that we're talking about here is Sukkot. And Sukkot we're excited about. That's my favorite. And we're going to get to go camping. Uh, Hopefully I'll be there. We have a baby coming very soon. So we'll see how that plays out. But many of you will be there for sure. Um, and so five days after Yom Kippur on the 15th of Tishrei is when Sukkot would start. And Sukkot is a, a seven-day celebration. Um, in, in English, this is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Sukkot is the last and final moed uh, or the final feast of the annual cycle. This is, in many ways, the climax of the, our celebrations with the Lord. This is considered to be, in Scripture, the most joyous time, the most joyous day or celebration of the year. And another name for this uh, this holiday is Zaman Simkatenu, which means the time of our rejoicing. And so, in fact, the Lord commands us to rejoice at this time. This is the only time that he says that we're commanded to rejoice. He says that in reference to some of the other appointed times, but here he actually says it three times, that we are commanded to rejoice at this time. I'm going to grab some water. This is more talking than I normally have to do. So Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days, After you after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male and your female servants, and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan, and the widow who are in your towns. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast of the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, that you will be altogether joyful. So he commands us to be joyful, and then he says he's going to make us joyful at this time. And the Torah typically refers to this day to Sukkot simply as hachag, which is the feast. Try to say that three times fast. Hachag. It's a tough one. Um, And this is because it's the feast because this is, it just shows the centrality of Sukkot, the importance of Sukkot. Um, And Sukkot is typically associated with the fruit harvest in Israel. This would have been the time that the, the late grapes, I believe, the dates, the figs, pomegranates, and then the early olives. So the olive harvest goes into October, um, even November, um, typically. So you're starting to get the early uh, olives as well at this time. And so this feast was also called the Feast of Ingathering because we're, we're taking the harvest in. And so the Israelites were commanded to bring the first fruits of the harvest to Jerusalem And whereas with the first two uh, pilgrimage feasts, they were actually going up and they were bringing the first fruits of their harvest before really partaking. They were bringing it at the the forefront of the harvest. Here with Sukkot, they would have the harvest and then they would go up. And so what they would do is they would set aside their choicest crops. They would set aside first fruits and then they would bring those up at the time of Sukkot um, to the temple. And so when you think about this, or it made me think about, excuse me, we're talking about um, saying Birkat Hamazon or grace after meals. Because the commandment in scripture is that after we've eaten and we're satisfied that we bless God, right? So it's good to bless God before meals too, but we're actually commanded to bless him after we've eaten and we're satisfied. And this harvest made me think about that. I mean, it's a lot easier to thank God when you're hungry and you're salivating over this plate of food in front of you, but how much more powerful is it to thank him after you've eaten and you're satisfied and you could just go your own way and forget about God, but to remember to come back and to be thankful. And this feast really made me think about that. It's like, we've already had our feast or our harvest. We've already partaken of the fruit, saw that it was good, but now we're going to remember to come and bring the best of it to you and to still bless you as the, the one who sustains us and allowed us to have the harvest in the first place.
1: And so one of the most central
0: and fun aspects of Sukkot is the building of the sukkah, um, which is the tabernacle or booth. It's a a temporary structure, a temporary dwelling place. These are typically three-walled structures with an open ceiling. Um, And these booths or Sukkot symbolize the temporary structures that house the Israelites during their time in the wilderness, during their sojourn in the wilderness for 40 years, um, when God dwelt among them in that time. Um, and just as, you know, throughout this process of God leading them through the wilderness and protecting them, he was faithful to lead them. So in our temporary dwellings here on earth, we know that God will be faithful in our sojourn to protect us and to lead us faithfully as well. Leviticus 23, verses 42 through 43. You are to live in Sukkot for seven days. Every citizen of Israel is to live in a sukkah, So that generation after generation, you will know that I made the people of Israel to live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So that's where, going back to Leviticus 23, um, we see this idea of the the sukkah. And so on top of the the sukkah, you would lay branches called skach. So this is uh, typically branches, really any good leafy greenery that you can fit over the top of it. We're leaving that mostly open. So you want to be able to see the stars still through it. And the idea of this skach coming up, there's a lot of uh, imagery that we have here, but it's a thing that's taken from the earth that's lifted up above the sukkah. So there's this idea of heaven and earth coming together, the thing of earth being lifted up to the heavens, and the two becoming one. Um, And this is also... Yeah, that's right. This is also symbolic of uh, the clouds of glory. So in the wilderness, the clouds of glory... Were over the people and they and protected them. Right, a pillar of fire by day and the clouds, are, are the pillar of fire by night and the clouds by day, protected the people. And you think about they were sojourning through the desert. I mean, this is hot. This is a a brutal place for the people to be. And the Lord's protection was over them and blessed them. And so this is a picture of that as well. And really thinking about this aspect of the thing of earth being lifted up, this is also a picture of Yeshua who is the the first Adam, right, of the earth, who was lifted up to the heavens and brought heaven and earth together as well. And so meals are traditionally shared in the sukkah. Um, the brave among us may sleep in their sukkah. Uh, so you see in Leviticus 23, it says that we're to, to live in our sukkah. We have not been brave enough yet to uh, to fully live in our sukkah for those seven days, but I bet there are some here that will, and uh, kudos to you. We'll get there. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to make my suka a little better if we're going to live in it. Yeah. So, and actually, if you want a, if you want kind of the secret to building a really good suka, what you need to do is go to your neighbors and see how they build their suka. And then you need to get the plans for it and then have him take you to Lowe's and use his truck and then get the materials to make his same design bigger. So that's, that's what I did. I stole Chris's idea. <laughs> <laughs> work. So you guys are welcome to come see mine. Um, yeah, and use Chris's truck anytime. It's Totally okay. Um, and so, yeah, this is, again, meant to be a time of joy. We're meant to share meals together. So this is a great time to invite friends and family um, into the sukkah to celebrate with you and to, to tell them about, you know, why you're doing the things you're doing and how cool it is. Um, and it's also taught that, uh, there's this idea of, uh, that come there's seven Ush which is Aramaic for guests, um, that actually come at the time of uh Sukkot. So this is another, um, just, uh, I don't really know where this idea came from, but it's really cool that just each night, um, there's a different guest that comes and visits. So, and these are all from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and then Moses, Aaron, Joseph, and David, um, and so, again, just throwing that out there so you can go and do a little little more studying it on, on it yourself. because um, so there's some cool stuff there. And so there's this concept in Judaism called uh, Hidur Mitzvah, which means to uh, beautify our commandment or to make the commandment beautiful. And this is really a great opportunity to do that. And kind of the way I think about it is if we're told to do something, if your parent tells you to do something, or if we as a parent tell our kids to do something, we can tell when they're doing the bare minimum to just like, reluctantly listen to what we're doing versus how happy it makes you. If you saw your kid go above and beyond and do the thing you asked them, but in like this great way that showed that they were joyful and everything else like that, we get the opportunity to do that with the Lord's commandments as well, to not just do the bare minimum, but to say, this is good. And I'm going to make it beautiful. And so with the sukkah, it's a great opportunity to do that, to decorate it, to, to make it beautiful. And so a lot of uh, traditional, decorations and you get to bring your kids into it. It's a lot of fun. So traditionally you'd put um, fruit, like fruit or decorations of fruit throughout it, you know, symbolizing the harvest, um, pictures of the, the guest of the Ushbazim a lot of people put up, like the clouds of glory, different clouds and things like that, or lights. I mean, whatever, whatever makes you happy, um, you can decorate it with. And dwelling in the sukkah is also a picture. Oops. Um, it's meant to to pull us away from our daily norm, um, and it's meant to pull us away from the draws of materialism of the world around us, and to place us in this place where we're stripped down before God, under the under the sky and under the stars, and uh, and to rem- to remind ourselves that just as the sukkah is temporary, so our bodies are are temporary, and so we're not, you know, we're sojourners in this land, right, waiting for the age to come, waiting for Messiah. Leviticus twenty three thirty nine says, but on the 15th day of the month, when you have gathered the produce of the land, you are to observe the festival of Adonai seven days. The first day is to be a complete day of rest and the eighth day is to be a complete rest. So I don't know if you caught that, it says that you're to observe the festival for seven days, but then it says that the first day is to be a day of rest and the eighth day is to be a day of rest. So it's like, is Sukkot seven days or is it eight days? And the answer is yes, to both of those. So the seven days of Sukkot speak of the 7,000 years of creation. So it's taught that there would be 6,000 years of our current created order, and then Messiah would come, and there would be a thousand-year period of the Messiah reigning on the earth, preparing the world. And then at the end of that thousand years would you know, we would have enter into the age to come, into the unknown, the eighth great day. Um And so with this, the eighth great day speaks of this time, of this day to come, when God the Father will come down and tabernacle among us. Right in Revelation twenty-one three, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So the Torah tells us that, um tells us this that of the the first day of Sukkot as well as the eighth day of Sukkot are to be Shabbat Shabbatones that I talked about earlier. So days of absolute rest um, and abstaining from all things laborious. So the eighth day in Israel is celebrated as the last great day. And it's also celebrated as Simchat Torah, which means the joy of the Torah. So these are uh, two holidays are joined into one. And Simchat Torah is when we would actually uh, restart the Torah cycle That we're going through every week. Um, and that's when the scroll would be rolled back. So if you're in a synagogue, you're going to have a scroll that you're rolling through, you know, each week to, um, you know, as you're reading through the Torah portion, you're going through the, the scroll. And so at the end of this cycle on Simchat Torah, you would actually roll the whole scroll back, which is a really cool thing to see if you get the opportunity to be a part of that. Um, and outside of the land of Israel, however, those those two days are typically separated. So you would have the last great day of the feast of Sukkot on the eighth day. Which is also called Shemini Ataret, uh, which is the eighth assembly, I believe. Um, and then on the day after that, on the ninth day, you would have Simchat Torah is how it's typically observed outside of Israel. Um, so in addition to the Sukkah, I know I'm running a little long, but I'll try to think through this. Um, in addition to the Sukkah, one more of... Uh, really the most defining customs of Sukkot is uh, the waving of the four species of the Etrog and the Lulav it's called. And so if we look at um, Leviticus 23 as well in verse 40, it says on the first day of Sukkot, you are to take choice fruit, palm fronds, thick branches and river willows and celebrate in the presence of Adonai, your God for seven days. And so the idea is that you would take these four species mentioned here and um,
1: consisting of an
0: etrog, which is a lemon-like uh, citron-type fruit, and then the lulav, which is the date fr- the date palm frond, three myrtle branches, and then a leafy branch, of the willow. And then it's traditional to assemble these branches together in the sukkah on the first night, and then the branches become known as the, the lulav collectively, and you have the etrog. And so you would take these together and wave them before the Lord, and there's a blessing that you say with this. Um, and so these uh, these four species would be waved each night before the Lord in the sukkah throughout the process of, of Sukkot. Um, and there's a lot of really good things about this that you can go out and read. But typically you would, you would wave it in all directions to the north, south, east, west, and then up and down as well. And this is a, a declaration of God's authority over all the earth, over all of creation. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into this, but... The four species do have a lot of significance as well. Um, different rabbis have different ideas on this, but there's some really cool things out there on on these, what they actually refer to. Um, but one popular one is that the, the etrog is kind of shaped like a heart, um, that that refers to the heart and the place of understanding and wisdom. That the palm refers to the backbone or uprightness. The myrtle corresponds to the eyes or enlightenment. And the willow represents the lips um, and the service of the lips. So it's this idea of taking our whole, the whole man to worship the Lord, right? Or to, to serve him and to love him with all of our hearts, souls, and might. And it's this aspect of bringing all of ourselves together and submitting before him. Um, and so in the time of the temple, every burnt offering and every peace offering was typically offered, sacrifice on the altar uh, was accompanied by a flower offering. Um, and by pouring a prescribed amount of wine as well onto the altar. And so at Sukkot, in addition to this, uh, water was actually poured onto the altar as well uh, as a libation with the daily sacrifice. So we're going to take a, a quick look at this. So this was um, something, again, that was done only at the time of Sukkot. And there were a couple um, different aspects to this. But the first would be the the ceremony of the drawing of the water. So the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam um, and would draw out the water and really quick here the, the mishnah says that he who has never seen the joy of the celebration of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy so this was not just like a, a little ritual that they went down and did and the people watched on and they moved on this every night turned into about a 15-hour celebration according to the the writings so this was like this time of intense joy and so the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam in the city of David, and they would draw living water into silver jugs for the next morning's water libation ceremony, and they would carry these up the road, the, the road in Jerusalem to the temple. And tens or hundreds of thousands of Israelites would be lining the road, celebrating, dancing, you know, waiting for this this moment. And then, as this ceremony took place, as they would go up to the altar. You would have Levites um, who were playing lyres, trumpets, harps, cymbals, other instruments. Other Levites would be singing. You'd have rabbis uh, performing acrobats, juggling flaming torches and all kinds of festivities. So this was like this super joyful, crazy time. Um, and then in the temple area, there were these three uh, golden sticks. There were golden candlesticks that were nearly 75 feet tall um, that they would go up and light. And you would be able to see, they said that the the light of these would cast shadows for miles, like six miles in Jerusalem is what they said. And that the light of the city could be seen from, you know, pretty much all over Israel, that you would see that the city lit up at night. And so for this reason, at the time of Sukkot, Jerusalem was known as the light of the world. And then as the ceremony progressed through the night, the priests would blow the shofar multiple times. And then each day for the seven-day festival, a priest would walk up to the bronze altar located at the temple court and would pour a silver jug of the living water into a bowl that would drain down onto the altar. So there on the altar, you would have blood and water flowing forth. You know, it just makes me think of Yeshua at the cross. He was pierced and blood and water flowed forth forth from him. The celebration that happened at night, what What was that again? That was like the... So, the The libation would be poured out, and then typically celebration, dancing, singing, all of those things would carry on. In, no, this would be out in the courtyard in, in Jerusalem. Yeah, Every night. Every night. So they would do this every night. Party it up. So I can't remember the exact reference, but I know there's uh, there was talk of people throughout the entire week that the, specifically the priest wouldn't sleep throughout the entire week. And that the people, you know, the the sojourners. I mean, you, you almost didn't need a place to stay because people were out all night. So this was like a really, really fun time. Wow. So we've we've got a lot to live up to at our at our camping trip, guys. Yeah. No sleep. You must be joyful. We need a happy stick or something. Be happy. So. Um, and then, so this was, this would occur every night, but then on the, the last night of Sukkot, um, this would be even amplified this process. And this was considered the most joyful night and the festivities would be the most intense on this last night. And so it was during this very ceremony that in John 7, which I'm actually going to turn to, Yeshua stood up. So he's, he's in Jerusalem for the feast of Sukkot. We see in verse set or in chapter seven. <clears throat> and starting verse 37, it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, so again, here you see it's called just the feast, Ha, Hag. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, or he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow forth from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So, See if I'm gonna read anything else. Yeah. And so jumping down to verse. Now we'll just keep reading it. On hearing his words, some on hearing his words, some of the people said, "Surely this man is the prophet." Others said, "He is the Messiah." Still others asked, "How can the How can the Messiah come from the Galilee, since the scripture does not? Since the scripture says that the Christ Messiah will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Yeshua. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way that this man does, the guards declared. So when he stands up, this is, you know, this wasn't a quiet thing that a few people heard him. He was in the courtyards. You know, the water had just been poured. The people had been watching and anticipating this water being poured on the altar. This has been happening for days. This is on the last day of the feast. In the middle of all the people in the courtyard, Yeshua cries out, And says that if anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, right? And that out of him will flow streams of living water. And so this was, I mean, one of the biggest statements that Yeshua ever made in the midst of the people was this messianic statement that he was making um, and saying, I am he. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm, I'm the one, the joy in this festival that you're experiencing, like come to me and experience the fullness of that. Come to me and receive the spirit. And you're not just going to get the the trickle of water from the pool of Siloam. You're going to get rivers of water that are going to come forth. And then I I continued to read on because after this, you know, on hearing his words, it says that many of the people were like, this man is a great prophet. Or many of the people were like, no, he's the Messiah. Because he drew a pretty clear line in the sand with the statement. This was a big statement that he made at the feast. And so during Sukkot, starting with the the first day, 13 bulls were offered. And then on each day after that, one less would be offered. So day one, 13, day two, 12, day three, 11, all the way down to the last day of the feast, you'd have seven bulls being offered. And the total was 70 of bulls that were being offered. So the the sages looked at this and they're like, that's significant, 70. There's 70 nations. The people were uh, divided up into 70 nations. So these 70 bulls are for the nations. Um. And Sukkot, as a feast of ingathering, is for the ingathering of the nations. It's a feast for all. And we read in, in Zechariah fourteen sixteen it says, Then it will come about that any, and this is speaking of the millennial kingdom, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will come up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Again, speaking of these sacrifices being for the nations, the sages taught that the destruction of the temple was a calamity, not only for the Jewish people, but for all of the nations of the world. The Jews knew what they lost when the temple was destroyed, but the nations didn't, right? Um, And so, don't have time to go into this at all. And I know Chris had a little something prepared for it, so maybe he'll share at a later time or maybe... Uh, when we're camping, we can talk about it as well, but it's also highly likely we believe that Yeshua was born at the time of Sukkot, and there's some really good reasoning for this um, that we don't have time to go into, but we will um, talk about it. And so really in all of this, the, the fall feasts are a picture of the final judgment, of the coming redemption, of the age to come, of the coming of Messiah, I and mean, all of these these huge things, right, that are wrapped up in where where is our hope? Our hope is in Yeshua, who's coming back again. And he's going to bring, he's going to make every wrong thing right when he comes. And he's going to bring, create a place in the earth where God the Father can come down and dwell, right? Where God and man can dwell as one. Revelation 21, where God will come down and tabernacle with his people. And we'll, you know, he will be our God and we'll be his people and we'll be one. And so that's what we're looking ahead to. And so as we go into these days and celebrate um, you know, be expectant for, for what's to come. Be excited about what's to come and treat it as a dress rehearsal. Because really more and more, the more I'm looking around, the more I'm like, hey, this might happen sooner than later. So we can really approach these days with expectancy, you know, of, of what the Lord's going to do. So thank you, Father, for um, your appointed times. God, we're excited about you and about what you're doing Um, and what you will do, Lord. And we look forward to the day where we can see you face-to-face. And until then, we're going to celebrate together and with you. Um, We love you, Lord, and we bless you. Thank you. um, Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.